the audible of the best in Bitcoin. This is the Crypto Economy. What is up, crew? Thank you for joining me. This is the Crypto Economy, and a thanks to the team over at Swan Bitcoin for helping to make the best in Bitcoin audible for all you guys. Uh, also, if you have not listened to the Giacomo uh, and Parker Lewis episode of the Swan Signal, um, which was uh, hit late in March, it's like March 20th or something like that, um, it's with Brady from the Citizen Bitcoin Pod. Uh, highly recommend it. I will link to it. Um, I just finally finished it now on my drive out to get some coffee this morning. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and get into the read for today. Um, we have returning author Connor Brown, um, and this is actually on the Bitcoin Reserve Journal. Um, and there's a lot of different topics in this kind of hit like piecemeal that I think we'll be covering more in depth like next week sometime. But this one is uh, the Bitcoin Reserve Journal is at journal.bitcoinreserve.com. Again, this is by Connor Brown, and it's titled Bitcoin, A Bold American Future. Reimagining America's National Security Approach. America's future is in question. Public and private debt are rising to record levels, and economic growth remains stagnant. Despite unprecedented fiscal and monetary intervention after the financial crisis, results have been disappointing. The American people do not need accounting tricks or more debt, but true innovation. Thankfully, Bitcoin provides a way forward. Instead of falling behind other developed nations, America should lead the world in embracing this monetary evolution and reap the benefits for years to come. With bold action and investment, Bitcoin will secure American dominance into the 21st century. This article will lay out the American case for Bitcoin across multiple dimensions, creating a modern-day gold rush to lift our country out of debt and into prosperity and safety. As a framework for discussion, I'll be using America's most recent national security strategy, published in December 2017, as a guide to demonstrate how Bitcoin should be considered fundamental to America's national security innovation base. Bitcoin will help rejuvenate the domestic economy. National Security Strategy, page 18. Lead in Research, Technology, Invention, and Innovation, NSS, page 20. Embrace Energy Dominance, NSS, page 22. Let's begin with our current financial outlook. The Dangerous Game of Debt The United States' financial position is dire. Federal Reserve Chairman Powell recently referred to our financial outlook as an unsustainable path, quote-unquote. The Congressional Budget Office confirms this warning. Quote, because of the large deficits, Federal debt held by the public is projected to grow from 81% of GDP in 2020 to 98% in 2030, its highest percentage since 1946. By 2050, debt will be 180% of GDP, far higher than it has ever been. End quote. Federal debt is only part of the story. Debt levels are unprecedented across multiple areas of the economy municipalities, private debt, corporate debt, and ballooning future liabilities add up to astonishing levels. A recent report by A.B. Bernstein calculated U.S. total indebtedness to be close to a whopping 2,000% of GDP. To make matters worse, these numbers depend on America's decade of expansion to continue indefinitely. As Hoisington Investment Management noted in a recent letter to investors, quote, deterioration in economic conditions would lead to a quick worsening in the debt-to-GDP ratio, pushing the debt ratio further into uncharted waters, even without new fiscal measures that would likely be enacted in such circumstances, end quote. With declining global growth and heavy impacts from COVID-19, 
this position is close on the horizon. Papering over our problems with debt cannot continue. Hoisington further noted, quote, The declining marginal revenue product of debt reconfirms that excessive debt usage is triggering the law of diminishing returns, which results in weaker growth in real GDP, end quote. Our approach is self-defeating. With such high levels of debt, our economic growth is lagging significantly behind previous recoveries. We simply will not be able to borrow our way out of this. The consequences are serious. Not only will an increasing debt burden harm the prosperity and well-being of average Americans, our debt will heavily impact national security. The 2018 National Defense Strategy held, quote, Without sustained and predictable investment to restore readiness and modernize our military to make it fit for our time, we will rapidly lose our military advantage, resulting in a joint force that has legacy systems irrelevant to the defense of our people, end quote. Quote, the force does not get hollow by the flip of a switch, but by inadequate resourcing, end quote. Admiral William E. Gortney. Across all services, our military is experiencing, quote, force degradation resulting from many years of underinvestment and the negative effects of budget sequestration, cuts in funding, on readiness and capacity, end quote. These findings led the 2018 Military Strength Index to rate American military readiness as, quote, marginal across all divisions of the armed forces. The U.S. Air Force fleet is the smallest, oldest, and, quote, least ready that it's been since its founding in 1947, end quote, with the average plane being in service for over 30 years. Our Navy's capabilities to build, upgrade, and most importantly, repair ships are quickly falling behind. Other crucial American capabilities, such as deterrence, are also in question. On average, our ICBMs are 40 years old, as China and Russia are building state-of-the-art infrastructure. While it is commonly known that America has the largest military in the world, the reality is our forces and infrastructure are aging. Other great powers are able to build on new foundations, while America will need significant resources to repair, maintain, and modernize legacy systems with decades of technical debt. To make matters more complicated, America's forces play an unparalleled role in protecting trade routes, international stability, and global crisis response. The last financial crisis brought us deep military budget cuts through sequestration. If the United States does not solve its debt problem, a future round of much deeper cuts is inevitable. To keep our global influence strong, we must take action now. Ever-increasing debt will only accelerate our economic decline and hollow out our security capabilities on all fronts. Remembering the Golden Years While deeply unsettling, America's financial position is neither unprecedented nor hopeless. Dr. Lacey Hunt notes that America had another similar episode in the 1830s where Americans took on large amounts of debt to finance early steamship lines, canals, speculation, and overconsumption. This ultimately ended with the financial crisis of 1837 and brought on a recession that lasted for several long years. But suddenly, quote, a very fortuitous event occurred the discovery of gold in California, end quote. The gold rush, an unexpected opportunity, pulled the U.S. out of financial distress and generated strong demand for our burgeoning transportation sector. New research refers to this period as America's first great moderation. The 1848 gold rush created unmatched economic success in American history with 16 years of strong, sustained growth. As Americans scrambled for gold, this period marked a, quote, transportation revolution with strong gains in productivity from expanding roads, canals, railroads, and global shipping routes. 
New technologies paved the way for this innovation, such as more powerful steam engines, faster railroads, and the telegraph. This initial windfall also brought secondary effects throughout the economic foundations of America. Greater labor connectivity and transportation efficiency led to major gains across multiple sectors, such as shipbuilding, manufacturing, international trade, and agriculture. Such developments brought in large amounts of foreign investments in American companies, further extending the cycle of stable economic growth. The external nature of the gold rush was key. Internal solutions of more debt would have only worsened the ongoing financial malaise. The gold rush thus provides an excellent blueprint for how a fortuitous event can spur critical changes across an economy. Bitcoin, a remarkably similar external stimulus, can do the same for America today. The Bitcoin Redemption America needs to spark a second gold rush. Just as the gold rush provided the incentives necessary to revolutionize our transportation infrastructure, Bitcoin can provide the same dramatic changes to our energy infrastructure. First, let's begin with a brief explanation of what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin can be thought of as a form of digital gold that can be sent over the internet. It is the first verifiably scarce digital asset. Instead of being controlled by a single entity, Bitcoin uses a decentralized global network of peer-to-peer -peer computers. With this architecture, two individuals can send and receive Bitcoin without trusted intermediaries. Bitcoin's novel structure gives it unprecedented characteristics. It is more scarce than any physical resource, infinitely divisible, teleporting, instantly verifiable, and cryptographically secured. With over a decade of continuous operation, Bitcoin has established itself as a peerless form of storing and communicating value. Like other resources, new Bitcoins are created through a process of mining. This involves expending electricity to secure the network and receiving a payout of freshly minted coins in return. However, unlike traditional mining, Bitcoin mining can be done anywhere electricity is available. The implications of this radically new design are staggering. For the first time, energy producers can tap into a global market for energy anywhere in the world. With this in mind, let's turn to our current energy landscape. Turning waste into wealth. America has an energy problem. Waste. Below is a chart from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Each year they produce a chart showing just how much is wasted in our energy production. Notice that rejected energy accounts for around two-thirds of all electricity generation. This is energy that is produced, but ultimately does not go to useful work. The amount wasted annually is around 66.7 quadrillion BTUs, or quads, of energy. For perspective, that is the energy equivalent of wasting 2.3 billion metric tons of coal every year. To make matters worse, this number has been increasing on a relative basis over time. In 1970, the LLNL found our proportion of rejected energy was around 48%. While much of this waste comes from inefficient appliances, transportation systems, and industrial processes, the largest share of rejected energy comes directly from electricity production itself, around 24.7 quads. This is precisely where Bitcoin can make a difference. By converting that wasted energy into Bitcoin, our energy producers will be more cost-efficient and energy-efficient without increasing emissions. This is possible because no power plant is perfectly efficient. Excess capacity must be generated to meet demands that are constantly fluctuating from season to season, day by day, and hour by hour. To deal with this otherwise wasted energy, a grid equipped with Bitcoin miners could fluctuate with behind-the-meter demand and mine Bitcoin with excess reserves. If there was an energy-intensive event, i.e. an especially hot afternoon, 
that excess capacity could be automatically allocated from the miners to the rest of the grid. The U.S. could lead this effort with 1. Grant programs for plants to upgrade their systems. 2. Tax incentives for plants mining with wasted energy. Or 3. Direct development and provision of mining technology. The secondary benefits for economic growth are staggering. Increasing the efficiency of energy companies could drive the cost of energy to much lower rates. This would bring new power plants and energy suppliers online and could accelerate advances in energy technology, such as micro-reactors. As Ayers and War carefully argue in their book, The Economic Growth Engine, economic growth for the past two centuries has been driven largely by the declining effective cost of energy. Their empirical analysis suggests the effect of energy efficiency, known as Javon's paradox, is the key driver for increased economic output. After examining many developed economies, they found that each economy's growth was directly stimulated by recent gains in energy efficiency. They conclude that new dramatic developments are needed in energy production. Otherwise, prolonged global depression is a serious risk. Some early adopters are making this a reality with Bitcoin. Greenwich Power Plant in New York State has started testing Bitcoin mining to increase their station's efficiency in off-peak times. Their efforts are already generating around $50,000 of extra revenue per day at minimal cost to the plant. This drives home a powerful concept. Bitcoin does not waste energy. It consumes energy waste. This is precisely the paradigm shift for energy efficiency and production that Ayers and War call for. It's hard to comprehend how powerful an impact Bitcoin could have on the energy sector and the economy more broadly. Transforming our power grid, establishing new forms of energy production, and reshaping electricity markets across the country would be a true energy renaissance. This dramatic shift would bring a myriad of economic benefits, such as reducing household and business costs, creating many new well-paying jobs, and strengthening our global competitiveness. Federal officials have underscored this approach. Secretary of Energy Mark Menezes recently championed the importance of advanced projects that, quote, enhance energy productivity, supporting the competitiveness of the entire U.S. manufacturing industry. End quote. Meeting these economic objectives could easily lead to further secondary benefits through a stronger consumer, more foreign investment, sustained economic growth, and a robust, long-term profit motive for advanced energy technology. And lastly, there is the Bitcoin itself. If the United States strategically built a significant position in Bitcoin, in other words, 250,000 or more Bitcoin, before announcing plans for Bitcoin mining, the results could be astronomical. A serious initiative by the U.S. would send a global message about Bitcoin's value and potential. Exchange rates would multiply overnight. By leading rather than following, America can create a windfall for our nation with the stroke of a pin. Orange is the new green. The recent collapse of the OPEC negotiations sent markets tumbling and America's energy sector into a financial spiral. This dramatic event and others like it, such as last year's attacks on Abkike, highlight the continued importance of establishing American energy independence. Despite decades of effort, America's economy is still heavily reliant on foreign fossil fuels. As the backbone of our economic system, depending on potential adversaries to supply our energy needs is a dangerous situation. Our current position leaves us vulnerable to foreign instability, market manipulation, attacks on supply infrastructure, as well as accidents and natural disasters. While a complete reduction in foreign energy imports is a tall order, Bitcoin can make significant gains by paving the way for renewable energy. Sustainable energy like wind, solar, and nuclear are abundant. Nuclear energy alone could power the Earth for hundreds of thousands of years with available supplies. The challenge for these resources is how expensive they are. 
especially when competing with existing infrastructure. However, Bitcoin mining presents the opportunity to quickly bootstrap renewables by turning excess capacity into profit. The reasoning is as follows. When creating a new power plant, large amounts of excess capacity must be built into the system, especially with intermittent renewables such as wind, water, and solar. This excess enables a plant to reliably meet a location's future energy needs, peak demands, and population growth. While this excess is typically factored into the cost of producing new renewable capacity, Bitcoin erases these costs. Rather than having excess capacity go to waste, new renewables could start using their energy for Bitcoin production from day one. Furthermore, Bitcoin miners are perfect for providing demand-side flexibility, an essential aspect of renewable viability. The potential for Bitcoin-powered renewables is already evident in China. A 2019 report by CoinShares found that approximately 75% of Bitcoin mining comes from renewable energy sources, much of which stems from newly created hydroelectricity. These new revenue streams have brought power plants online, which otherwise would not have been economically viable given existing population density. These field results match studies conducted by U.S. Energy Information Administration. Their latest Energy Outlook report finds that lower cost is directly associated with a faster renewable transition. As costs for renewable generation fall due to Bitcoin profits, renewable production will rapidly gain market share over imported fossil fuels. The benefits of this bootstrapping effect are twofold. First, cheaper renewables provide a clear path to energy independence. With a profitable and viable strategy for renewable energy, America could quickly begin its transition away from foreign fossil fuels and towards greater energy security. Second, Bitcoin is a major victory for environmental sustainability. While many eco-advocates simply focus on reducing consumption, the best path to sustainability is vigorously pursuing profitability for clean energy. Once they are cost-competitive, markets will create the proper incentives to bring new renewables into existence. Thus, Bitcoin is a major step towards solving environmental sustainability domestically as well as signaling to other international actors on how to build competitive renewable grids. Going green with Bitcoin not only helps the environment but keeps us secure from foreign actors. Other countries are already beginning to take advantage of these benefits for their own energy needs. America should lead the way and set the stage for a renewable energy revolution that will shock the world. Final Thoughts Just a few months ago, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin publicly declared Bitcoin to be an issue of national security. On this point, he could not be more correct. Bitcoin is a serious issue for our financial, energy, and environmental security. Each of these alone merit serious attention, but together, they are one of the most important decisions facing us for years to come. America is a nation of people who work hard, dream big, and never give up. The United States has the unprecedented opportunity to usher in a new era of prosperity, reigniting U.S. economic growth, building a strong base for funding our armed services, and firmly establishing American energy independence. It is time to embrace who we are and forge our own future with Bitcoin. A special thanks to Karina for helping to polish this up. All right. So that was Connor Brown's piece on the Bitcoin Reserve Journal. Again, that is at journal.bitcoinreserve.com, and there's a lot of great articles up there. And uh, now there are some things that I kind of disagree with the, uh, maybe the direction that was taken with this, but there's so much good stuff in this article. I want to hit both. Um, and uh, Connor Brown always has very interesting stuff. Um, so I'll be sure to link back to this so you can check out the Bitcoin Reserve Journal. And, uh, of course, uh, follow uh, Connor Brown on Twitter. But real quick, let's go ahead and hit our sponsor, and then we will jump back in to Guy's take on this article. 
So I stopped to take a break and get a drink and get something to eat and was going through my podcast and actually saw that the next lineup, I mentioned the Swan Signal episode um, with uh, Parker Lewis and Giacomo. The next one in the lineup is actually with Connor Brown and Marty Bent. So uh, I'll put a link to that one as well because uh, I just started into it, um, but it's really good. And uh, it happens to be the author the, of the article that we just read. So uh, I thought, oh, well, crap, what a great uh, a coincidence there. But uh, this article is um, a little bit, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a hard reality that I think um, America and everyone in it has to admit is that we are seriously in decline. Um, we've, you know, dug ourselves into a debt bubble um, and kept thinking that if we just dug ourselves deeper into this problem that we could somehow, somehow find ourselves, find our way out of it, which is just, it's absurd to think that, I mean, the only way out of it is to destroy our currency, which destroys everything else with it. Um, and... It's so funny that these numbers, like, just a couple of weeks ago, like, this article actually came out on, like, March 23rd or something. Hold on a second. I, can't, I got so many windows and tabs and stuff open right now. Where is it? All right. Scroll up to the top. When did you get released? Yeah, 23rd. March 23rd. So this is just a couple of weeks old. And already, the essentially, the kind of dire economic circumstances um, that were laid out at the beginning of this already look way worse. I mean, just think about like, like he says that the the supposed um, uh, problems of you know like our GDP, our debt to GDP becoming like near ninety eight percent, right around one hundred percent in twenty thirty. Well, this was dependent on the fact that our last decade of false expansion would continue indefinitely. We could very, very well see ourselves, I mean, if our GDP declines by, there are estimates right now that our GDP, our, our actual economic output for the country could be hit by 20 to 25% this year. You realize that if we are right now at 81% of GDP, if we took a 20% hit, we would be at the 2030 mark. We would be a 100% debt to GDP because our GDP is crap. And that's to say we don't get any more debt that we, than we would expect at the end of this year. So like, I think both have been exaggerated. I think, we're, I, I think this year could very well put us 10 years, 15 years ahead of the problem. Um, like just soar us into like the idea that these are going to be problems in 2030 and 2050 at 180% of GDP, I think we're barely a handful of years before we're, we're at that sort of a stage. Um, and that, that's to say, that's to say that we managed to reinflate this thing. Um, who, who's to say if we get into a serious, like prolonged depression, I mean, it could be no time at all. And the only way that, I mean, the, the way that they have done everything, they have doubled and tripled down on every single thing has been in getting more debt, in printing more money. 2020 and the early 2020s will be years of breaking debt and money printing records. Historically, across the, literally the, the history of humanity, we will be just unprecedented um, economic stimulus and money manipulation. I haven't dug into the actual numbers of the report by uh, Bernstein that he mentions, talking about how U.S. total indebtedness, you know, derivatives on top of derivatives, all of the, the um, Caitlin Long talks about the $83 trillion in just, uh, like, American debt, like, just in American citizens, and then the, the amount of liabilities and stuff that are unfunded. I mean, just all the things stacked on top of each other that it could be near two thousand percent of gdp like the specific number i looked up was like 1872 or something like that a thousand eight hundred seventy two percent um but just that it could genuinely be 20 times what we produce and th that's without accounting for the fact that gdp is a terrible measure of what we produce <laughs> um and it's manipulated to be inflated itself just like all of our price manipulation is 
Um, and it's why we're constantly chasing these nominal, um, this, these nominal growth numbers that are meaningless. Like, like our, our standard of living has been in decline. Inequality has been increasing. Like we, we've been in stagnation for quite some time when you look at real, the real context, when you look at efficiency, when you look at standard of living, when you look at like real productivity. Um, and if you look at something like the uh, uh, Chapwood Index rather than the CPI, like inflation has been really bad, particularly in major cities, um, way worse than they're reporting. And all of that, like we're, we're chasing these, these nominal, uh, mostly arbitrary and not indicative of the reality um, metrics that specifically make GDP look better, which again is not actually representative of our productivity of what we're actually um, getting accomplished and what actual value we're producing. That's what all this has been a problem of, is it, the increasing divergence from all of our economic signals, from our pricing mechanism, from the, the value of our money, from the value of our stocks. All of this has been divorced from what is actually happening. Uh, the... Uh, uh, Marty's bent. If you if you didn't read, I think it was today's actually today's or yesterday's, um, but the shot that the the picture that's going around Twitter, and uh, I shared to a couple of people too was the one of um, uh, what was it? Cr Jim Cramer on CNBC. Uh, within the background, it says uh, Dow has the best week ever, like since 1938 in a uh, percentage growth, and then at the bottom it says breaking news. Uh, 16 million Americans um, report job loss in the last like two weeks or something like that. Just the most absurd dichotomy. Like you could not have a juxtaposition that shows how nonsensical our monetary system is right now than that. That our stock market is on the strongest rally, the highest percentage increase since 1938, and we have never come close. Come, never come close to the number of job losses we have just seen. We are in the worst position as far as reality. We are in the most painful, real productivity, real on-the-ground economic situation that we have ever seen in American history, potentially, and yet the stock market is increasing. If that doesn't tell you that those numbers mean jack shit, well, then nothing does, because you're too, too hard-headed to get it. Now, the area where um, I would say uh, I disagree with Connor Brown's uh, argument, though it's, um, uh, he's taking a lot of this from the uh, America Strategy. Uh, what, was, what was that report called? This odd name. National Security Strategy uh, Report. He's talking about how the military is terribly underinvested in and underfunded and you know we have a lot of cuts in funding and sequestration uh i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree that i think this has anything to do with the problems in our military um and the degradation of the quality um and the uh incredible fall in output per dollar invested you know the uh Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory energy consumption um, report talked about how 66.7%, two-thirds of our energy is just lost or rejected, is produced with nowhere to go. Essentially, it's just a massive amount of waste in the, energy, in, in the, the sector, um, just in the production of it entirely. Well, I, I, would, I would argue that it would not be a terribly uh, risky bet to say that the funding, the amount of waste and inefficiency in the funding for our military is equal to or larger. I do not think it is at all a problem of not enough resources. It is a problem of staggering waste, of staggering misallocation into bullshit, useless projects that produce nothing and the inability to cut anything, the inability to fire people who are completely worthless. You know, I'm in North Carolina. There's a lot of military dudes and uh, people who like I have family who works in uh, government. And 
I've never heard anything but a consistent reality that if somebody is miserable, sucks resources, it is just complete waste of time, it's impossible to fire them. They have to keep moving them out of the way just so that they don't destroy the people who are actually getting things done, so they don't interrupt projects. But they can't get rid of them. It is the most nightmarish thing. That alone, that alone, this is a systemic problem too. This is not something that you're just like, oh, this one division is crappy in this one town. No, this is, these are policies that stretch across the nation. And the policies are garbage. They destroy any sense of efficiency or meaningful spending. I once spoke with a friend talking about how uh, like towards the end of a quarter or, or like whenever their like uh, fiscal period is and they have to report like either a surplus or a loss, et cetera, et cetera, to, to request or um, essentially prove the status um, or the needs of their budget is that they would literally rush at the end of this period to just throw money at stuff. Because if they had money left over, they had to spend it immediately on just a bunch of random crap. They were, they were encouraged and highly pressured to waste it because if they didn't, they would get cut the funding for the amount of their surplus. It is literally better for them to spend it on stocking up on a thousand rolls of toilet paper than appear to have any surplus of resources whatsoever. This does not happen under a sound money standard. Not, not for a company or not for an institution that wishes to stay in business for any length of time. This is because of artificially cheap money. This is because you can print money, you can print debt, you can, make, you can steal value by making it up out of thin air and, and direct it toward resources, direct it toward um, projects and institutions that will literally set it on fire. There is no scarcity for government. The, the, the illusion that, we have to, that they have to worry about a budget is out the window in the last two weeks. They know they have an unlimited money printing machine, and they are going to use that unlimited money printing machine. And I think the rest is just the idea that there's like uh, significant limits to their budget, and what they're able to do is a facade to create political pressure to do things. Um, and, uh, you know, the people... They, they don't have any pressure because the people don't experience direct taxation. They don't see it. It comes from debt. It comes from, it's only now, it's only during times like corona, the corona days that suddenly we realize what the cost of all of this crap actually was. Because if we don't have two days of growth, the whole thing plummets. The, whole, the, the entire house of cards comes to the ground. So there's no pressure to contain their spending. They... They, they get whatever spending they want. They, when was the last time that they voted into a program that we couldn't afford and that they didn't get it? What the people see is a, a constant decline and an unexplainable, in, in their eyes, decline in living standards. They see an increase in hardships and poverty. They see that everything gets a little bit more difficult to afford. Uh, their, their situation seems to be more fragile. They Rather than having $10,000, $20,000, you know, a couple of months, maybe a year in savings, they have days worth of savings, if anything. We have an entire, like multiple generations that have almost nothing to fall back on in the time, in, in the case of an emergency or, uh, you know, job insecurity or uncertainty. Like 16 million people just lost their jobs at a time when we have less savings to fall back on. We have no insurance. We have no hedges against this thing. We're all leveraged against the, the exact opposite outcome, that everything's going to be great. And of course, this sad reality that is a consequence of this endless government spending and debt gets blamed on evil capitalism, while a small military office is rushing at the end of, month, end of the month to just throw a $15,000 down the toilet. Extrapolate that across the entire military across every contract, across every division. Just, that is, that is happening everywhere. This isn't something that's isolated. This is at every corner of that giant machine. Plus, the, just the military-industrial complex in general has been leeching so much money. Um, I mean, as much as possible with poorer and poorer results over time. Um, they have so many government contracts, so many politicians in their park pockets. Um, 
there's no there's zero reason for them to improve. Um, why would they Why would they alter their entire structure of operation, their workflow in any way? Why would they cut the fat if they just get the contract the next year? There's no pressure for them to change. If then it, it never just never happens. You know that's why we have 40 years of stagnation. That's why we have aging, degrading infrastructure. Is because what's the incentive to update any of it if no one's going to get fired for not? If money is guaranteed, if there's practically zero competition, and if they fail miserably, it's blamed on we didn't have enough resources, pay us more. No, you don't get another penny until you produce something with the money you got. The damn budget's like $800 billion. They don't have a resources problem. Everyone else has a resources problem because of the amount they're consuming. Anyway, getting too riled up about this. Um, and I, I, I a little bit disagree <laughs> with Connor on this point that uh, our, um, our problems with our aging and degrading military is, in fact, a resources one in the sense that it's not enough resources. I think it's not enough resources spent on useful, productive things or actually uh, real security. Real security as opposed to security theater, as opposed to uh, fancy, great-sounding contracts that don't produce anything, um, things that worsen our security, that make people hate us around the world, that make us look like the police, that are nanny-stating every single country and what they, have, what they do and destroying their sovereignty, um, that you know, sits us spying and uh, manipulating other countries' elections. Um, Sending out disinformation campaigns from the CIA. I think I think a lot of our spending is what the resources devoted to the military, to um, our intelligence ag agencies, are actually directly responsible for the degradation of it. Um, but anyway, too much to go into for one episode, and, and we're getting off track. Um, that was uh, I do agree. There is a massive, massive amount to fix. Um, in that, and it explicitly needs sound money. It explicitly needs um, uh, the the budget constraints. It, it needs to shut down what's not producing. It needs to shut down what's not working. It needs to break up and sell off. They need to go into bankruptcy and turn it into a real something real that produces good results and actually achieves security for the country and looks inward as opposed to policing the rest of the world. But anyway, moving on. Uh, his discussion about the gold rush. So this was a really interesting thing. I didn't really know about the uh, 1930s. Like, I knew about the boom with the gold rush, but I didn't really know about the, um, the mini boom and bust um, and depression that happened in the 1830s. And so that's, a, that's an interesting little parallel that I kind of liked was that, you know, the gold rush pulled them out of that and the Bitcoin rush could pull us out of our current situation. But that's, I think he's completely right. What we need is economic innovation. What we need is real growth out of here and not, not fake growth, not debt growth, but we need to find a technology. We need to find an innovation um, that's going to redirect these things. It's going to find efficiency that we've lost and we're overdue for it. We've had 30 years of backlog in non-improvements in false lifting of productive numbers that's actually been in investing in productivity-destroying, in value-destructive institutions and industries. Um, and we need to reallocate. We need to reallocate. Trillions of dollars have been misallocated into pointless projects or things that have been literally consuming value and producing less. That's a lot to undo. And at the heart of all of that problem is manipulated money. Money manipulated to cover up the fact that we're destroying resources to get those big, pretty nominal increases at the end of the year. The Dow went up, everybody. It's so great. Look how awesome everything is doing. Ignore the fact that a third of the freaking economy just reported unemployment. Number go up. All good, everybody. But the... Uh, the section on energy, his discussion of like kind of the dynamics of energy hits so many points that are really hard to articulate. Um, and 
Uh, I just thought he did a wonderful job with that whole section talk explaining how um, uh, Bitcoin could be such a boon for energy production. And also, I'm probably going to, I'm going to see if there's an audiobook for this, but the Economic Growth Engine by Ayers and War um, that, he, that he mentions to or, or, or references in their book about how economic growth um, for the past two centuries, basically their thesis is that for the past two centuries, economic growth has been largely driven by a decline in the cost of energy. That, uh, and th there's a good reason, there's, there's a really good foundation for that just from a logical standpoint is that the, the cost of energy is the cost of literally everything we do. It's, it's, very, it's as foundational as money to economic trade as energy is to production, um, like money is the foundation. If you if you have manipulation, if you have uh, bad information and uh, false uh, false indicators at the monetary level, well, then you're going to screw up all economic trade. You're going to influence everything. But if you have sound money, well, then same story. You're going to have uh, sound more sound derivatives. You're going to have more balanced prices. You're going to have uh, economic trade that gets out uh, resources where they're supposed to be allocated into their highest value purpose much faster than other you otherwise would. Whereas you kind of have the same sorts of effects in the cost of energy. If the cost of energy goes up, it doesn't matter what you're doing, it's going to be more costly. The amount that we can actually produce of it um, and the amount of value uh, that we can actually exchange, that we can afford to exchange, will decrease. End of story. And if you decline, if you, if you reduce the cost of energy production, if you can find some incredible way to make our energy infrastructure more efficient or um, not have this enormous amount of waste um, in it, if you can make up that difference, well, you've, you've essentially decreased the cost of everything. You've cut, if you, if you can add 10% additional efficiency to the production of energy, you've, you've, lowered the cost by 10% of everything that uses energy, which is all things. Not comparatively, but just in whatever the energy cost is, you've lowered that cost by 10%. And that's a, that, is not, that is not something to ignore. You know, like that's, that's a powerful thing to be able to focus on something, one key thing. That's the, that's the beauty of Bitcoin as a monetary good in, in, in my eyes is that we have so many problems that can start to be corrected, that can be shifted in the right direction and can be given correct pricing and uh, expose where the imbalances, is, imbalances are by fixing the money. And energy is one of those fundamental things. Bitcoin does two, take, takes two of the largest, most connected industries, like the the two key tools um, of society, of society at large, and fundamentally changes the dynamics of both. That is incredible. And I talk about this numerous times on like past articles, and I think I even did a Guy's Take episode on this about how Bitcoin is going to be such a boon for just energy efficiency in general. And this one just hits it so great, is that how it can reduce the overhead, and all of the uncertainty in the production of renewable energy. That literally from day one, they have a customer. And uh, one, of the, one of the interesting, the most dramatic shifts in um, the sort of dynamics of this that I hadn't quite considered is that this could eliminate, this could, this could put a giant dent in all of the fighting and politicization of energy independence, of, of fighting over national resources, or a nat excuse me, natural resources at the nation state level. Now, obviously all of our energy isn't going to go to Bitcoin mining, but this is, this is about natural resources. That, like Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining gives a use for energy, gives a profitable use for energy, particularly wasted energy, stuff that's not only not profitable, it's just zero. It's just, a, it's just a net loss everywhere. This gives a natural resource that can be tapped into no matter where you are on the planet. 
whatever means of electricity generation you have, whatever it is, if there is waste, you can access a global financial network immediately that is entirely extranational. It depends on the stability, the acceptance, and the, the, you know, the political uh, environment um, of no nation on earth. It's completely extranational. The more energy market, the more portion, the greater the portion of the energy market that can reroute its wasted energy to take advantage of, uh, like to essentially start producing for Bitcoin security, the more they decrease their exposure to any macro political battles over energy dominance. It is in itself a form of gaining partial sovereignty for energy producers. I love, uh, Marty Bent always calls it the, uh, Bitcoin is the true green new deal. And I just love that because it affects, um, it affects renewable energy more than anything because it has the highest uncertainty cost. It has the highest, um, uh, uh, differences between peak and, uh, trough. Uh, periods of production uh, you know things like solar you know it produces almost nothing at night and then you know in the middle of a hot sunny day it will produce a lot um, and that might have nothing to do with in, in relation to the actual demand of that energy and that's the key is that we have to have so much redundancy and we have to produce so much excess in our energy systems in our energy grid because of the massive fluctuation in peak demand versus uh uh, lowest demand uh, time periods. There needs to be enough extra to handle the peak plus any random increase in that, like a very, very hot day or something like that. You know, like, you know, peak might be 30% higher than your lows, but you might have to be ready for a 50 or 60% increase on particularly bad days or during some event or a natural disaster. Who knows? And that. And needing to account for all of that shift um, in uh, demand and needing to, to manage for those peaks leads to greater waste. I could not believe, actually, based on that uh, uh, LNLL, the Livermore um, report on energy consumption or whatever, that that actually has gotten worse over time. I actually read that was actually the subtitle, um, subtext underneath the uh, graphic that shows natural gas and how it goes to industrial, commercial, energy services, etc. And just shows the massive amount of excess that just doesn't get consumed, gets wasted at the other end because of bad connections or inefficient appliances and all of this stuff. But that it's at 67%, like right around 66, 67%, two thirds of all of our energy produced. It's just trash. It's just trash. Not to mention the amount of natural gas and stuff that's burned off that doesn't even produce, produce energy. There's a, whole, there's a whole nother measurement of enormous amounts of energy wasted and uh, uh, greenhouse gases just burned off and put into the atmosphere that um, it is also there to tap into. And think if you could grab half of that. You're talking about Bitcoin consume, having the ability to consume the equivalent of what we currently produce without taking away one cent of it, without taking away one watt of energy from what's actually used, but actually doubling our, the amount of energy that goes to a productive and useful asset with no loss whatsoever, with no trade-off. Now that's a stretch, but it's theoretically possible. And it's exactly the elements that go into Bitcoin. It's exactly the fact that it's not geographically restricted whatsoever, that it's got a completely global um, uh, asset that it produces that's not limited to any jurisdiction, that doesn't care whether country A or country B accepts it. It's still, you can still obtain value from it. It's an independent asset. I mean, that's, that's a game changer. This is not a small shift in the dynamics of this. I mean, it could completely alter everything we think about energy production and how we organize it. Um, and I love the, the, the quote, um, and this is becoming like my favorite thing ever, was Bitcoin does not waste energy, it consumes energy waste. Love that. 
could not more simply illustrate the power of this technology um, as, a, as both a buffer and a supplement to every sort of energy production we have today. And what's funny is none of this is dependent on the profitability of it. None, think about this. All of this energy can be expended profitably on Bitcoin regardless of how much the quote-unquote cost of production is because it's wasted. It's already a loss. It's not a question of is there 2% profit on the cost of energy versus the cost of actual Bitcoin, like the price of Bitcoin. It doesn't fluctuate at all. It's always profitable if there are any Bitcoin picked up from it at all because it's, it's a negative otherwise. So this is something that really would not even account for. You'd have a huge base of Bitcoin security production that is irrelevant to the price swings. It's irrelevant to the overall mining profitability. I don't know. Long story short, Bitcoin could not be... I'd have a really hard time... In fact, I wouldn't be able to do it probably. Designing something that was more beneficial to energy production and energy independence as the Bitcoin system. It is, I think it's as much of a game changer in energy production and efficiency as it is a game changer in money. Not quite, because our problems in money are vastly bigger, are way, way, way worse um, than uh, the level of problems and imbalances that we have in energy. Uh, but they're pretty staggering. And like we talked about, is that energy touches everything. It's, it's one of the, if there is a comparable market to uh, the importance of money, it is something very fundamental. The, those other elements that are as critical as Bitcoin are, or excuse me, as critical as money to an economy are the cost of time and the cost of energy. Those are the only two that I think really, really are comparable. Um, so awesome article. I loved it even where uh, I, uh, I disagreed with uh, assessment on the military. I, I, I may have, I may have some bias uh, in that regard, <laughs> and it may make me a little bit heated. I don't know. But this was a great article, and uh, much love to the Bitcoin Reserve Journal. Um, I, this is really interesting, and I only actually stumbled upon this because I specifically kind of watch Connor Brown in my list of uh, everybody who has good writing on uh, Twitter. Um, so I kind of uh, keep an eye out for it, but they've had some really good stuff. Uh, so highly recommend going and checking out. Um, uh, it's it's journal.bitcoinreserve.com, but it's the Bitcoin Reserve Journal. Uh, so obviously I'll have uh, links to Connor Brown's Twitter social media, um, and the original article plus the, just the general blog. So you can check out all the awesome stuff they have over there. All right. With that, we are out as a long rant. Um, great piece though. Really love that one. And don't forget if you have not set up your Bitcoin savings plan, do not wait. We are in, we are in money printer go burr times, and there is no better time to start saving a little bit anything that you can manage to afford i know it's rough times for that but um you're going to get the lowest fees and you're going to get the easiest method of starting your bitcoin savings plan savings plan with swan bitcoin so um i'm thrilled that they're around and i hope you guys take advantage of it uh, swanbitcoin.com and much love for those guys for supporting the audible of the bitcoin space that's me guy swan and the crypto economy podcast soon to be Bitcoin Audible. Keep an ear out. Uh, I'm not sure when. I don't have an ex uh, explicit date that this is going to drop. Um, there's still a lot of work to uh, get sorted out in the back, on the back end. But I think I've got some really fun stuff. Uh, I really like the new logo and cover and stuff. And uh, I hope you guys, I hope you guys like it too. I will catch you next time. Have a wonderful weekend. Um, and, uh, we'll be back here on Monday with another episode until then. Take it easy guys.